The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. I'll tell you one thing, they ain't getting a TV. Hello. Stories from our past were often told to scare us, to make us conform and keep quiet. But the spectres of these stories still linger in our culture to this day, waiting for the right moment to jump out on us again. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and overgrown launch site, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's seminar focuses on Mars Attacks, 1996 science fiction comedy directed by Tim Burton and with an all-star cast led by Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Pierce Brosnan, Natalie Portman and Sarah Jessica Parker. My guest is Anthony Malone and you join us in a sanctuary dome deep beneath the ravaged surface of the planet Metaluna. So did you enjoy the film? Mars Attacks? Yes. I've seen Mars Attacks twice. I saw it on opening way, way, way back. Uh, in the mists of time and then I saw it again for uh, for this rewatch and my thoughts on it really haven't changed in the, the intervening years Right. I found it a very amenable film it really only has one major failing and that is that it's not as funny as it should be uh, it needs a much funnier script it has an absolutely knockout final moment which sends the audience out with a real skip in its step. It's a patchwork. It's a collage. It's about 25 years ahead of its time. It's got better CG and visual effects in it than Independence Day. And it was definitely part of the decline of Tim Burton into uh, from the heights of the Batman films to, um, well, to where he is now. But it was definitely of a piece with his... Um, his oeuvre. I think, as shown in the film, the the parodic version of America is on the the point of collapse. Uh, it's satirizing America by having by the country being attacked by uh, a caricature of itself. I think the satire in Mars Attacks is incredibly lightweight. It's also cross party in that the entirety of Congress gets zapped by the the aliens yes left and right it's not it's not pointing to anyone and saying these are the good guys no because even the most sympathetic nicest character at the ends of the film are dimwits yes it's an equal opportunities attack on pretty much a, a cross section of of america and there are some points in the film where some of the americans particularly the resolution to the film the resolution to the uh, the actual martian attack there's, there's some Americanisms which go over my head. It's it's a strange film because it's you've got the same sort of alienation that's in all of Burton's films. People are basically wheeled on the screen for us to dislike, and then the script makes them behave in ways in which they then deserve their demise. But I still think it's a better film than Independence Day. I think it's a more truthful film than Independence Day. As I said, I think it's years ahead of its time. Because at the time, I remember 
people were sniffy about the provenance of the material, the fact that Burton was was building a script out of the Topps trading cards. And this was seen as another illustration of general decline of American stand dumbing down and, and all of that. And it was the 90s, so Christ, you had some serious crap on TV and at the cinema, as indeed you do now. But of course now we're post the Emoji movie and post the Lego movie and post recently um, Playmobil, um, where brand is everything. And in that, Mars Attacks was years ahead of its time. And these days, people will use those brands. And if it's a good script, if it's supposedly like the Lego movie, they will use it as an opportunity to pour their wit and their talent and their musical numbers into it. I hate those movies. I don't like, um, you know, I don't buy that the Lego movie is a great movie. I think it's a device to get you to buy Lego. That's all it is. And I don't care how witty and amusing it is. So in that, I find Mars Attacks to be slightly more innocent. It's very sweet. The characters that Burton clearly likes, he has a clear affection for. The Natalie Portman character in this film is is of a piece with Winona Ryder's character in Beetlejuice. The the pa- Pam Greer's family and her her parenting skills are. I'd love Pam Greer to be my mother. I think she's really great. And then of course you've just got Jack Nicholson eating up the screen. The dual role confused me slightly when I, I remember seeing it at the first the first time at the cinema. But nowadays, you look at him and you go, actually, compared to what we've got now, Burton was on on form. He was on point. So, yeah, I think on the rewatch, I found it a much more amenable watch than I I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be much more episodic and piecemeal. It's a very gonzo movie. I kind of wish it was a bit, bit wilder. I'd like someone like John Waters to take this on. For Burton to get a huge budget and to basically make an Ed Wood movie and then... And for Habit to be a big success. It wasn't a big success. Um, it was a fairly big ex- success. Well, it didn't make its money back. That's not what the writer says at the moment, that it did about $70 million in the, the US and then was success more abroad. It didn't make its money back. I'm surprised to hear that. That's That wasn't my... I, I, well, he probably wants to talk about the film as though it's successful oh, because yeah, he wrote of it, and, and I think that he's over-egging. I mean, it's not a particularly great script, but it's um, I, no. I didn't have it down as a massive class O bomb. No, it, it, it wasn't. Survived. It wasn't a. It's not even the least successful film with the word Mars in the title, but it it did flop when it came out, and it mm. um, it put um, Burton on the back foot for a couple of years. I remember seeing it. I don't quite know why I this is stuck in my my memory, but I have great affection for that period. I was seeing someone who was a film graduate, and she and I used to go and see a lot of films together and and chit chat about them. And I remember that I have a memory of going back to her family home, and after we'd seen the movie, and uh, her mother was in the front room, and casually said, "How was the film?" And I looked at my then girlfriend, and we kind of went, uh, "It's it was all right. Uh, everyone got killed." about half an hour in and it was a bit weird really and that was the overriding impression this was Burton he was wobbling definitely the Edward project was well we can talk about that but yeah the great days of where he was lauded by um, film geeks and indeed the wider the wider public for Batman it was on a slow decline and look where he is now with his his continual adaptations well he'd had a very uh, strong run he'd uh Batman had been a gigantic success. Edward Scissorhands had been a commercial, uh, had been a critical success, uh, had been financially quite successful, but had a um, 
uh, a very good cult response. Batman Returns wasn't the steamroller that Warner Brothers wanted it to be, but it was a hit and it was profitable. Mm. And he parlayed that into doing Ed Wood, which was a flop, mm. but it won an Oscar. Mm. It won Martin Landau his Oscar as uh, Best Supporting Actor. So he was coming to Mars Attacks from a position of being both bankable and critically credible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the only reason why the film even got made, mm. because they assume, well, he clearly knows what he's doing. His films are popular with critics. When he makes something that's meant to be populist, it's successful. And he wants to do an alien invasion movie and cast Jack Nicholson. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, good, yeah, okay, do, Tim, do whatever you like. And but, boy, did he. But whatever you do, don't kill off Jack Nicholson. And in return, he cast him in two different roles and kills off both of them. <laughs> and Nicholson thought that was a hilarious idea. Well, of course he did, because <laughs> he I think going back to his, you know, his independent sixties background, if it annoys the executives, he's in favour of it. Yes, absolutely. And there are some truly bizarre images in this film. There's obviously some images lifted straight off the trading cards, which I reviewed before I did this, this rewatch, and um, I'd forgotten the giant robot, and I was quite pleased to see that he actually did that. There are big giant bugs in the Topps trading cards, which obviously back then he, he wouldn't have been able to do. Could this film be made today? On this scale, probably not. Because mm. there is... Uh, everyone seems to be playing it fast, so safe in terms of commercial filmmaking, in terms of um, big budget films that in order to do Mars Attacks it would have to be a big budget movie it would have to be loaded with stars it would have to be someone like James Gunn Mm -hmm. but even then he's sheltered by the fact that he's working with Marvel Mm. and he has the trust of people like um, Kevin Feige whereas with Mars Attacks it's a completely separate project it's completely it's not original because it's based on trading cards as you say but it's not part of anything else so mm. there's no safe haven under which Burton could shelter Burton or whoever was doing it. Yeah, it's um, it's it, it's not exactly a well-known brand, and I think it's much better known because of the film. Yeah, oh yeah, I yeah. Think the film is well known. Yeah, um, and the film has moments in it which frankly make no sense unless you know the trading cards exhibit a the opening scene the stampede of barbecue yeah Uh, the opening particularly the music at the opening is very reminiscent of the start of independence day and there's there's parallels all the way through even though the even though the two films were made pretty much simultaneously and released only six months apart so what's what's with the stampeding cattle it's just the aliens having a laugh. Not according to the card, it isn't. Oh, okay. What is it according to the card? Then? So according to the cards, the um, UFOs have been going around incinerating cattle and um, fields of, of wheat and stuff in order to soften humanity up. Oh, I see. Reducing our food supply. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So um, that doesn't come across in the o- the opening. No. And this, this doesn't have the... Um Strict uh, plot rigorousness of a series of trading cards. Uh, it must it, be said. Mm, mm. This wasn't even Burton's first choice. He wanted to do the sequel, which was Dinosaurs Attack, but then Jurassic Park came out, and it said, "Well, that's been done now. Mm. What? Anything else? Well, there's one with aliens. Great. It's really 
quite bizarre to see someone try to spin a, a multi-million dollar film out of some images of, I suppose, what are they, bubblegum cards, trading cards? I don't know enough about the, the provenance of them. But also, clearly, to do shoot the film in the style of Ed Wood, because this is clearly the film that Ed Wood would make if he was handed a hundred million. Yes. And it's quite astonishing. And I was trying to think, you look at, let's pick to a, a random example out of thin air, Rise of Skywalker. At no point does J.J. Abrams try to mimic the directorial style of George Lucas. The 70s-ness, the slowness of the shots. No, um, but George Lucas doesn't even do that in the prequels. The nearest I could think about this was the shot-for-shot remake of Psycho, where it's clearly they're trying to recreate the actual, what Hitchcock was doing directorially. But it's a really weird thing to do, to abandon your own creative voice and to go, I love Edward, worst filmmaker in history, who by accident, in my opinion, came up with his own style, a very heightened theatricality, cheap, melodramatic. Well, there are a lot of elements of Wood's style that don't carry over because he liked having... Um, voiceover over silent footage mm. which Burton doesn't do or having people narrate directly to camera which Burton doesn't do there is one sequence where he uses a, a chunk of stock footage but it's cleverly mm. incorporated into the fiction itself it's the sort of film that Ed Wood would make if he was as competent as a, a director as Burton because if it was really the film Ed Wood would make it would be an unwatchable mess well we'll never know because if you've, I mean, if you've seen any of Ed Wood's movies mm. I mean they're not unwatchable you know they are really bad. Yeah, I, I mean and they I've are feel, really incompetent. I've dipped into Plan Nine and I can't really make my way through that whole thing. Life's too short. But actually, his uh, his ven- Burton's ventriloquism was better placed in the biopic in in Edward um, the film. Yes, where you have people narrating exactly. to camera, where it's 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 like in the life and death of Peter Sellers. It's the story of the person told the way they would tell it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but here it's it's much more of an homage, and to and to sort of big budget fifties sci-fi movies as well with you know, skull-faced aliens and mm. and but the, the UFOs are straight out of the Daily Earth stood still I would have said and Earth the, versus the Flying Saucers and the, and the theremin the use of that all absolutely over the yeah that's that's the Forbidden Planet as well yeah. which has lots of flying saucers and um, weird monsters if Mars Attacks was made today and it came out on DVD post Mad Max and it's um, blood and chrome version uh, you would absolutely get a black and white version of Mars Attacks and they'd crop it to 4.9 to make it look like a 50s B-movie, which would be quite fun to watch, really. Well, it would have to be convincing in the form of a 50s B-movie. Yeah, so it's an amenable film. It just needs to be funnier. There are one or two moments where I laughed out loud, particularly the ending, which we'll talk about. As for where this sits, 1996, my God. I do remember that, yeah. God almighty. Three years after the start of the X-Files, people had started taking aliens and UFOs uh, seriously. I want to believe the same year as Independence Day as we've talked about and here comes Tim Burton taking the piss out of um, the whole alien invasion stuff. I was interested to see it's a year before Jackie Brown and we are led to believe that Tarantino rediscovered her. She wasn't, she was a uh, Pam Greer was a jobbing actress for, for, for years. This is the second film from 1996 starring Pam Greer that's been in Cinema Limbo. Oh, um I'm trying to rack my brains now. Okay, tell me. Escape from L.A. Oh, I don't think I've seen that, actually. Notable gap in my viewing. It's also one year after GoldenEye. 
Yeah. I was wondering when we get to this. It's worth pointing out at this point, listener, that I'm actually being held hostage. Um, the only way that Anthony would agree to cover Terminator Genesis mm. was if the next two episodes that he recorded were both Pierce Brosnan films. Quite right. Because too. he is a disturbing Pierce Brosnan obsessive. Like in that episode of I'm Alan Partridge, where you've got the guy who's got a picture of Pierce Brosnan tattooed on his chest and goes around wearing a Pierce, uh, an Alan Partridge really? mask. And and I'm in his house, and it it looks exactly like that. Oh, it's, really? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a strain to keep my voice level and to keep the fear from my tone. Oh, right. Okay. You don't mind Pierce being in that chair over there with the uh, the, the masking tape all over him and, and struggling? And it's not Pierce Brosnan, listener. It's a mummified corpse. So, listener, it's it's just possible well, that it's more Ed Gein than Edward as a as a bit of a wheeze. Over the years, I might have uh, exaggerated my love of Pierce Brosnan to absurdist levels. He hasn't. It's all true. It's it's um, it's a bit of a laugh, really. Pierce Brosnan, obviously the finest human uh, who ever breathed. I think we can agree on that. Best Bond, yes. No. A a great humanitarian, a uh, an artist, um, bon vivant, um, uh, a master of his craft. A great singer, I believe. Um, mm. his, his talent knows no bounds. <laughs> well, it does. And the reason that I can terrorise Jeremy with great shots from the many wonderful Pierce Brosnan films that there are is that I have a lot of time for Pierce Brosnan, but it is a fact, and let's be honest here, there is something a bit naff about him, and that is because he's a pretty boy. And... He's got rather bland good looks, and he's been in some fairly ropey straight-to-VHS films. Death Train's a good one, I believe. That's a cable movie. That's I believe I've sent you many screenshots from that one. Indeed, starring Sir Patrick Stewart as well, who also is no stranger to uh, rather schlocky material. Pierce has got better over the years as he's aged, as his face has got more character. He's got a fairly limited range. I have a personal <laughs> theory <laughs> that Pierce Brosnan is the most important person in James Bond for about the last 30 years, which I might regale you with later on. But here... You needn't bother. I'm going to save my... Uh, we're going to do a second Pierce Brosnan podcast, listener. This is just my cup overfloweth, so I might save it for, uh, for that podcast. But for the moment, we find him here one year after his debut as James Bond. He's already trying to stretch his muscles... He's doing essentially what Daniel Craig did in Logan Lucky, which is to find a a little character that he can crawl inside and have some fun with, basically. And he's a lot of fun in this film. He is. He it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well for him, to say the least. It doesn't end well for nearly everybody. But Almost every character in this movie dies well, is in that, a horrible yeah. and inventive. But movie. I have to say, I would not. Wa- there's the scenes in which he he ends the movie, and I would not like to be part of please just shoot me by the aliens immediately he's a lot of fun in this movie but he has no particular funny lines it's just a comic performance it's a bit of a caricature and the um, the first choice for his character as the the bookish professor was hugh grant oh which of course is uh, very, very that's a no-brainer really isn't it of course mm. but i think deciding to go in a different direction and casting james bond as the bookish pipe smoking professor yeah is a very good choice because you would cast Daniel Craig in that role now. Yes, you absolutely would. You would cast Roger Moore in that role in the seventies, mm-hmm. and yeah. Roger Moore would eat it up. 
Yeah, I mean, the casting of this film reminds me of something like the Cannonball Run, where they just get a chocolate box of the current up for it funsters and stick him in a bit of a ropey plot and and see what happens. Cannonball Run is an excellent movie, by the way. Mm. <laughs> so the film's opening is firstly the the, sta- the stampede of barbecue and then the launching of the Martian Armada. Yes, uh, in a pleasingly old-fashioned title sequence. That is a brilliant title sequence, and I love it. I love Burton's title sequences full stop, particularly around this era. The Edward title sequence is excellent as well. Batman Returns title sequence, I vividly remember because I was beside myself with excitement. It's one of those great cinema moments where you've been looking forward to a film for months and months. You've been playing it through in your head as to what might be happening and then and then the film opens the film with opens. A, with a rich couple throwing a baby, baby into, into a, a river sewer. and the music swelling and it's gothic and and away we go and actually i think the movie goes downhill slightly after the uh, the name of the film unfurls on the screen and the bats appear from that point on it just goes down a notch but anyway we can argue about that great title sequence for mars attacks cgi yes obviously C- <laughs> cgi be well it could it could have been models but CGI very, very well deployed all the way through the film. De- definitely, um, there was an intention originally of making the Martians CGI, uh, making sorry, making the Martians stop motion. Uh, he was going down the Harryhausen. Yeah, yeah, to be to be authentic to the the films to which he was paying homage. But they looked into it. They looked into the practicalities of it, and it was just not going to wash. Yeah. So instead, the the Martians are all CGI, but I believe with frames removed to give that slight bit of judder to their oh, movement really? so that it looks like it might be stop motion uh, they're excellent there's a particular close up of one right at the end well it, well, the tear well, forms the tear in its eye out, and that's stupendous for that time 1996 yes it's um, can you imagine the, the amount of time they must have used to try and render it the, the long shots of the aliens particularly when they're carrying people up the ramps of the spacecraft when the ambassador is coming into congress aren't as good and that's probably something to do with the resolution of the screen and, and the you know mm, the rendering maybe. of it all. But when was Babylon 5? It was around the time. Because Babylon 5 is notorious for having... Crappy effects. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't put Babylon 5 on TV in the same era as Mars Attacks. It feels like there's a step change going on in cinema, which of course there was. Mm. But I think the effects here are rendered brilliantly. The, uh, the landing of the sources... Well, I would I would compare it to say um, the first couple of seasons of Star Trek Voyager, where the Voyager it was mm. CGI mm. and that looked fine, and mm. they seemed to know what they were doing with it. I think Babylon Five it was just that they were cutting corners, uh, so they did all their visual effects on videotape, and it looked like shit, which didn't matter because Babylon Five's great, as we all know. Have not seen it since it was broadcast. Time for you to get the box set and do a rewatch. So we're introduced to a whole range of characters. We have Professor Pierce Brosnan. We have Pref- we have President Jack Nicholson, who is the classic venal politician who is, I think, quite clearly based on Richard Nixon. Good point, yes. We have his first lady, um, played by Glenn Close, whose one character trait throughout the film is she is obsessed with redecorating the White House. She's brilliant in this film. She gets the tone spot on. I like that this film hits the ground running. There's no faffing about. Um, no, it's we go straight in. For a film with a huge cost and a huge scale, it is a tight one hour 45. Yes, absolutely. 
you start with the shot of Nicholson checking out the long-range photos of uh, the UFO, and then it cuts to his flunkies in the, the Oval Room. And just that single shot of sitting there is Martin Short. So instantly, you know where you are with the film, because clearly they're all a bunch of total clowns and ne'er-do-wells. And you've got a sort of Oliver North character in there as Played well. Played by Rod Steiger. Yeah. Now, I think there, there's a certain Doctor Strange love element going on in Mars Attacks. There's a lot of Doctor Strange love in yeah. Mars Attacks. Yeah, and I think that's a bit of a lift as well. His character is the, you know, the kill, kill stuff. And Glenn Close is great at playing... There's a series called Damages. I'm aware of it where she is a lawyer and my god she is terrifying in that series when she shouts you don't want to be anywhere near her she has more versatility i think than someone like meryl streep because uh, never meryl streep never does comedy really when was when is meryl florence streep? foster jenkins you don't think that's a, a comedy what about De- De- uh, death becomes her oh okay yeah i'll give you death becomes her fair enough florence foster jenkins didn't really feel like a comedy it was l- a light drama I think, there's, I think there's a difference. But Glenn Close is, you know, she's done serious drama, mm. she's done classic period drama, she's done Mars Attacks, and she's done Guardians of the Galaxy. And she's Cruella Deville. And she's Cruella Deville. And she takes them all seriously as pieces of work, but she doesn't take herself remotely seriously. No, she's brilliant. And she's one of the few uh, actresses that, if she was in a play in London, I'd probably hightail it up there and. and and check it out. The musical version of Sunset Boulevard, as I recall. I, diff- I didn't see her there. 25 years ago. I can really see her in that, though. Oh, yeah, perfect oh casting, God. obviously. Yeah. So all of these are monsters and caricatures that we're introduced to. We're also in Las Vegas. We've got uh, some nuns thing, taking... You've got Natalie Portman. Oh, you see, you have Natalie Portman as the first daughter. And she's the first sympathetic character that we, we come across. Although Because she just can't be bothered with any of this stuff. Yeah, so she's the Winona Ryder um, character in this film. And we need to talk about Tim Burton's habit of casting his, his current girlfriends in his movies. And yes, we do get that later on. Mm. In Las Vegas, which is the de facto <laughs> uh, capital of the United of States trash. in the film, yes. we have two nuns taking their pictures with a boxer. Yes, we do. And that's um, Byron Williams, I believe. Is he actually a boxer? Jim Brown. I don't believe so. He was in The Dirty Dozen. Again, it's sort of it's Burton's interest in sort of films of yesteryear and casting people who haven't been in things for quite a long time. He's an amenable presence, but I didn't say he's a particularly great. He's um, a former heavyweight champion of the world, now reduced to yes. being a greeter in a Las Vegas casino and getting bossed around by the management there. So we've gone from the top of America, the Oval Office, and it's clearly staffed by a load of clowns and caricatures, yeah. to the bottom, to Trash City. Um, and his ex-wife is Pam Greer, yes. who lives in Washington and is looking after their two children. And who appears to be in a completely different film. Yeah. But no matter. And then there's a bit of a jarring cut to one Jack Nicholson. And yes, the other Jack Nicholson uh, as Art Land, who <laughs> is in the in the process of developing a new casino. Never seen without a cowboy hat and sunglasses and horrible moustache. And his wife, Barbara, played by Annette Benning. Yes. Who is a uh, flower earth child type. And Art actually says, I am not a crook. Yes, he might as well have a t-shirt with crook on it is he not channeling a little bit of dennis hopper it didn't occur to me but i see your point my thinking was that the two jack nicholson's are um nixon as he saw himself and nixon (laughs) and nixon as others saw the huckster yeah the um you know would you buy a used car from this Mm. man type 
whilst the the president is sort of the the noble, presentable, uh, amenable statesman. Yes, what he'll put his name in the history books. Only Nixon could go to China, and mm. only Jack Nicholson could go to Mars. I have to say, I remember at the time thinking, I, I don't understand why Jack Nicholson is, is playing two roles. It's it's a really jarring thing, and and it's at the start where you're not quite sure if it's him. It's very clearly him. Yeah, I didn't get it at, at the, the start. It took me a while to figure it out. It becomes later, clear later on, of course, that it very much is. He thought it was Pierce Brosnan again. It would have been a superb depiction. No. So what happens next? Oh, there's... Um, we cut to New York. We cut to New York. There's a uh, a TV show hosted by uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm-hmm. It's a, a sort of fashion entertainment news type show. And her boyfriend is a serious news reporter played by Michael J. Fox. In his last uh, mm. live action film role. Really? Yes. Yeah, it's it's so sad because he's always such a, a, a welcome presence really yes i um, mean he's he's been in uh he's done voice work in films since then he's worked on television mm. he even had a, a short-lived sitcom personally i don't think it gets better than his performance in um curb your enthusiasm as himself where he is accused of deliberately shaking a can of oh, coke no. to hand to larry and larry is yeah. convinced that he did it on purpose that sounds than, like curb your enthusiasm and it's and it turns out in fact that he did do it on purpose it wasn't it wasn't the parkinson's he that's really the gag shake. yeah yeah the Sarah Jessica Parker role is she, because she's this sort of fashionista. It's of a piece with all the hairdressers in Edward Scissorhands, all that sort of chintzy fifties, bright colours, it, slight is, airheads. It is, as you say, quite John Watersy. Hmm. In it, it's it is a chintzy fifties style, but it's not unsympathetic. Oh no, she's um, she's one of the most you know, honest and likable characters. And that's in the what film. I mean about this this having quite a sweet nature to it, this film. Despite the fact that he, he lines up a lot of horrible characters uh, and then knocks them straight over. The Actually hor- the horrible characters all die <laughs> and the nice characters all live. Well Sarah Jessica Parker all kind yeah. of Well that yeah that's the exception. Yes. But at least Tom Jones survives. That's not unusual. <laughs> Good old Tom Jones, a great. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about him when uh, when we get to him. There's an interesting little prescient line that Michael J. Fox has when he's watching himself on TV. Uh, he mentions the phrase "factually challenged." Oh, I thought that could come off the TV um, in 2020, certainly. So anyway, the president gets on TV to address the people and and say, "Don't panic, but the Earth is surrounded by a bunch of um, aliens." Watched by his daughter. Who's ordered pizza to be delivered. And she's reading. I was a bit annoyed that this was actually all over the internet because I pulled the frame out and I, I, I... She's reading Siddhartha by Herman Hess. Brainy girl. I think that's what we're meant to, to think. Yes. I have a hunch Natalie Portman chose that, that novel. That's the sort of thing. The um, I've gone off yeah. Natalie Portman over the years, I have to say. Oh, my heart's broken. Mm-mm. Oh, what a shame. Mm. One of the great romances of the decade. I used to like her. She's great in Leon. But I think it was Black Swan that finally did it. Black Swan is not a good film. Black Swan is a giallo that everyone seems convinced. No is a real argument movie. from me. It's like being trapped in a teenager's head for uh, for two hours. So anyway, this transmission from the president goes all over the world, or at least all over America. And um, and watching it is the little boy from Witness, Lucas Haas. Lucas, Lucas. Um, I haven't seen him a lot lately in films. Inception. 
Oh, you're right. Yes, of course. He's right at the start, isn't he? Yeah. I would never have pegged him, though. Uh, there's a, a Danny DeVito, who is more concerned with his gambling and the actual announcement. Throughout this film, people watch everything on screens. There's a little sort of mini-criticism that everyone's glued to the TV. And TV is the big demon. It's another symptom of America being mm. the place that deserves it, because everyone's just... In a film inspired by Topps trading cards, this is yet another Hollywood film which reveres people who read books whilst being a fundamentally dumb bit of nonsense cinema. You, But you can appreciate it as... You know, it it, it is like the scene where... Uh, old auntie laughs hysterically when congress is turned into a bunch of skeletons yes you can laugh at that that's a great scene because but not just because it's that's inherently funny but also that her reaction is funny yes and it works on multiple levels i would say that there yeah. is that there is a, a pleasure to be had in the dumb comedy but also in how the dumb comedy is reflected against these uh, epochal events it is yeah, it, it's reaching for Doctor Strange love. Yeah, because in Independence Day, we're invited to take the whole thing with total seriousness and to cheer when we get to the rallying presidential speech at the end. And when Will Smith punches the alien and goes, "Welcome, Welcome to, to Earth. Earth," that's meant to be the punch the air cheering moment. I, I bet that would have been um, cheers in in cinemas in Texas, for example. Well, I saw it in Cardiff, so I don't know. Mm, I, I'm i not a big fan of Independence Day, I have to say. I think it was derivative when it came out, and, and it's made by an idiot as well, who <laughs> hasn't really... He didn't really distinguish himself with any... Um, of his other films. With any of his other films, including uh, Resurgence. Indep oh, yes, Independence Day God, Resurgence. That's yeah, a that, film that we really wanted. Of bad, didn't it? Anyway... I fell asleep during that. In... <laughs> Independence Day resurgence. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, yeah, not not worth discussing. So Emma, we have the other characters coming. We have Lucas Hart's family, his uh, parents, played by Olan Jones and Joe Don Baker, and in a small role, which uh, he is now, of course, instantly recognisable. It's Jack Black, and in an even smaller role, his girlfriend, played by Christina Applegate. Oh, I didn't know. I'm afraid I'm not up on uh, modern uh, pop like you are, Jeremy, so uh, that um, went over my head. Uh, well, clearly, because she's a famous actress and not a singer. Really? You're not Fiona Apple, Christina Applegate, from Anchorman and The Sweetest Thing, and had her own sitcom. She um. was in Married with Children. She's a well-known comedy actress. Have you got a bit of a soft spot for her? No, but I can remember things. Mm. Okay. I think you like Christina. I think you like Pierce Brosnan. Are we going to point fingers all day? My my uh, interest in Pierce is entirely irrational. Entirely irrational. So he has a family of gun nut yokels. Yeah, they're horrible. Um, they're a caricature of... And they all uh, hate him. Little, uh, but they all hate him because he's the, the one who isn't. Mm. You know, he, he's not obsessed with guns. He works in a donut shop. And he really likes donuts. Yeah, and he's clearly the Burton avatar in the, in the the film. He's the good goodwill at the outsider. He's alienated from everyone. But he's also quite. I mean, even within the film, we're invited to think, oh, he's actually quite odd. In a, yeah, in a benign way, but he's quite odd. Because I think when the aliens draw the circle in the air, he goes, "Oh, that's the international sign of the donut." Yeah, you go, "You are a donut." 
but he's uh, he's a nice kid. Yeah, and as is mentioned later, he's his he is his aunt's favourite. Yes, and it all comes good in the end for uh, for those two. Yeah, Stuart the Maker says, "Oh, if any of those Martians come here, I'm going to kick their butts." Just uh, just like small town idiots do. Yes, us with our city ways, laughing at the small town idiots. Martin Short, uh, as the press secretary, uh, is seen picking up prostitutes. Yes, it goes from the scene with Pam Greer, which is a great scene because she she does this thing where she she spots her two boys in an arcade firing guns at aliens. Which guess what, folks, that might be slightly useful down the line. And she she storms in, she grabs the boys out, she brings them onto the bus, and of course everyone cheers on the on the bus. And so that's the really positive side of it. And what Burton does is he keeps the the camera on the street where she's just driven the bus through, and in rolls a limo. And in the limo is Martin Short, and he's clearly a degenerate, depraved sex maniac. He plays it quite well, actually. And and that's going to be his comeuppance later on. Meanwhile, uh, Professor Kessler, Pierce Brosnan's character, go, for some reason is going on Natalie's show. Yes, it's a bit like Brian Cox going on the clothes show to announce that they've discovered aliens on Mars. Yeah, doesn't quite work. But and and uh, Michael J. Fox is very jealous of this, of course, because he thinks being an actual journalist, he should get the story. Mm-hmm. But um, it turns out that... Um, I noticed that Natalie asks an intelligent question and gets an intelligent answer from Kessler. She says, we've sent probes to Mars. Why didn't we spot anything? And his reply is that they must have had an underground civilization. Exactly. There are canals. They've almost certainly been plotting away underneath. Mars does not have canals. It has. They do in this cha- film. It has channels and ca- well, yes, I know, but mm. they're stating things as fact that people. Yes, might, don't the, trust the this audience from a scientific point of view. Fact. No, Mars doesn't have canals. Mars has canyons and channels, mm. but it does not have canals. Um, but he's saying that face on Mars is is not. It's an actual face. Uh, no, it's the same way that when you look at a cloud, you see something you recognise. The human brain is programmed to recognise faces. It's the brain imposing order on randomness. Indeed. And indeed, that's what I do. I impose order on randomness wherever I go. Then why do you keep reading all those Guy and Smith books? What Guy and Smith books? All those books about crabs. <laughs> no comment. Well, Kessler's a fan of Natalie's. Oh really? Which explain, In what way? Which explains why he wants to go on her show, because he's he's watched her show before and he has a bit of a crush on her. He does. And it's rather sweet, as you say. And she flirts with him uh, while they're on camera, and Michael J. Fox is just fuming. Yeah, it's great. But, but he's convinced that Mars is friendly, just as the picture breaks up with a transmission from Mars or the Martian fleet. The ambassador or the the emperor alien appears on all TV screens, uh, going ack ack at the entirety of planet Earth. Scientists don't come off well in this film. They are all either completely deluded or they create boxes that don't quite work to translate the the alien's speech. The misunderstanding they make is constantly assuming that the aliens couldn't be warlike because they're advanced. Yes. It ignores the concept that the aliens have spent all this time developing scientific miracles just so that they can attack Earth just so that they can be dicks because the Martians only motivation throughout the film is that they're a bunch of dicks 
Well, they, it's you're quite right. There's never any explanation as to uh, what sparked they are, the, the attack. Well, it, it goes back to the 1950s and you know fears about foreigners and communists. They're doing this because they're evil. Yeah, they're doing it because they're monsters. And the film pushes that to the to the logical extremes by having them do weird experiments for no reason other than it's a laugh. Yes, absolutely, and to break into uh, great peals of of laughter. And the the ak ak type dialogue was a placeholder. <laughs> really? Yes, they they just did that on a on a temp track so that there would have to be something coming out of the Martian's mouth. And Bertha thought that was so funny that they left it in. Yeah, and they do that for all their dialogue. It's great. <laughs> Glenn Close's reaction and. I'm not, having th- I'm not having that thing in the White House. That's brilliant, their, their reactions. They're not eating on the Van Buren China. When Burton pitched this to these two, they completely get it. And I'm very impressed that, you know, they can't see any of the aliens. They must have been completely bemused by the, by the Topps trading cards and indeed the, the script. But they just get it really right. Yes, I mean, they would have been shown concept art and things like that. So they'd, they'd know what they were supposed to be looking at. Yeah. Some great shots of Pierce with Jessica Parker with his pipe. It's the the egghead professor and the mm. beautiful blonde. It's very very parodic. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but it's it's a list actors doing this silliness. Yeah, there are no no jokes. By the way, There's, this is not a gag filled script. I think there it, are some jokes. It's just comedy performances and caricatures done really well. We then switch to Kessler who seems to have already souped up a, an anatomical map of, of the aliens and uh, is insisting that they are peaceful and enlightened. He's also developed a translation machine. <laughs> yes. And they feed the uh, uh, the speech of the Martian Emperor into the machine and it comes out with absolute gibberish because they're just so different from us, you know? Yeah, he's got a great faith in uh, their their peaceful nature, which is going to be proved sorely wrong. We get a shot of Natalie Portman in the White House, walking down a corridor, and Burton frames it so she's tiny. She's surrounded by this huge machinery of state. She's another identifying figure for, for him. Basically, he's he's demonstrating his alienation from pretty much everybody in this film, because it's, it's caricature central. There's a big distance from us and any real people here, apart from the, the tiny, small outsiders. And then we get, is it Jack Nicholson's uh, Annette Benning, Barbara, at an AA meeting... Yes, she's been sober for three months. And she's getting a bit hippy-dippy. She's very optimistic about the future. And under normal circumstances, that would be a great positive attitude to have Mm. for someone who uh, is three months sober. Um, Meanwhile, Billy Glenn, Jack Black, is off to join the army. And he punches his brother before he goes. Yeah. (laughs) Because he's just horrible. He is. He's straight out of full full metal jacket. He's a wannabe... He even um, looks quite a bit like Vincent D'Onofrio's character. Yes. yes. Uh, although he is just naturally that shape. <laughs> D'Onofrio, D'Onofrio put on a lot of weight, but Jack Black is... Because by this stage, that, like that performance in, in Full Metal Jacket had uh, entered into parody, and that's what Jack oh, Black yeah. is, is channeling here. Absolutely. Except he's completely incompetent. That's yes, the, very... That, his, yes. his father says, oh, the, don't worry, the army trains them well. He can't even operate a rifle well he can strip it down and and rebuild it in what under two minutes or something like that he's been learning how to do that yes but when he points at a martian pulls the trigger the magazine falls out it does go horribly wrong for him unfortunately okay so martin short gets up on the platform and there's a gag with (laughs) a question from the press corps yes do the martians have two sexes like we do says a member of the press 
who looks fairly androgynous. I I think perhaps the most appropriate word would be intersex. Intersex. Yes. Wow. Meaning? So that means. Um, apologies, listener, if I if I get this wrong. This is from my own recall, and it may not be a hundred percent accurate. Someone who is between male and female, um, in terms of gender rather than physical sex. Ah. So with elements of both, I believe. So to say two two sexes as we do, well, we have more than two, I think, as as we now know. Um, but it does seem a little bit of a cheap shot. It's the sort of thing that John Waters could get away with because you know he's doing it mm. from a position of affection and kindness. There's in, a beat held way. by Nicholson and, and Short up on the platform. There's There's no line. They just hold it and stare at this person who said this and it is kind of amusing but it's cheap it is a bit cheap and it's and it feels out of step yeah there there are there are other there are other things you could have done i think with that moment and other other jokes you could make because the film makes it goes out of its way to build up horrible characters and then to basically kick their asses, and to suddenly have someone in the press corps stand up and ask just a normal general general question in 2020 to look back on that is just a little bit I don't know um, out of date basically. The film is 24 years old. I know, yes. Yeah, so uh, bless it. So I think we're aware of there having been shifts since then. Um, I mean, Will Smith is married to a stripper in uh, Independence Day. No, he isn't. Oh no, he marries yeah. he marries her. They're yeah, not married at the start of the film. Um, but it's but it and we get a nice salacious shot of her at work. Yes, and at the same time, we're also encouraged to look down on her. Yeah, and that's the that it's impeded his career. Um, that's not a that's not a, a thing problem that I had with it because I thought that w- that was believable that it would. There's a moment of gay fear in Independence oh, Day. Oh, yes. Do you remember this one yes. where um, Will Smith is, is showing the uh, the wedding ring that he's got for his, his wife-to-be and he's in the locker room with one of his mates and one of his mates starts taking the piss and gets down on one knee and holds up the ring to Will Smith and, it's, and all this. It's not even as a joke. It's that he, he, he drops it and Harry Connick Jr. picks it up and, he ha- and, and someone happens walks all, as someone in. walks around the corner it looks like he's proposing. So, oh, gays. Yes, yeah. Oh, uh, Emmerich is gay. He's openly gay, and he's made a film about Stonewall, mm. which makes it even weirder. But I just don't trust him as a filmmaker. Um, well, no, of course not. Neither do I. Uh, his film about Stonewall is apparently terrible. His film, his film about Stonewall. Oh my yeah. god! But I don't think it was even released in the UK. It got terrible reviews and uh, made almost no money. What's the last, apart from Independence Day Resurgence, what was the last Emmerich film you slept through? Did you see 100,000 million years BC? That, no, that's quite a lot. That came out quite a long time ago. Uh, he has made a film since then, uh, which was another flop, which was Midway. Oh, yes. I've read about that recently. Um, it didn't. Which it hasn't even made... Uh, if you if you discount the Chinese gross, because that's generally all over the place, it's made. it hasn't even made its budget back. Mm. Um, I checked out the hotel with 2012. I went to see that at the cinema. Um, I enjoyed 2012. Oh no, I tell a lie. No, for, it wasn't 2012. It was the day after tomorrow. Yeah, that's a which was just silly nonsense. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the basic part of that is fair enough. That you know, there's you know, climate emergency and we ought to do something about it. Okay, 
does your wildly unrealistic film help a great deal? Twenty mm. twelve was just pure, unalloyed nonsense, and it wasn't pretending to be anything that it wasn't. And I find that very entertaining, as just a, a full on disaster movie. And our friend uh, Chris likes uh, a bit of. Um, I think he does. Yeah, disastrous it's, it's weather. It's the, it's the towering inferno. It's the Poseidon adventure, but it's Earth. Earth is the ship that's turned upside down. Earth is the building that's on Absolutely. fire. Absolutely. And um, I thought it was good fun. So I've got a, a few points here to discuss. The the way that the timeline is presented in Mars Attacks no, right. is very much reminiscent of Independence Day, of having that mm. the daylight across the bottom of the screen. The way the film is parodying disaster movies as a whole, with the all-star casts, yes. the big set pieces, even down to the way it was promoted with... Nice planet, we'll take it. Well, with the with the the pictures of the cast across the bottom of the poster. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that. Yes, you're quite right. That's very a towering inferno, isn't it? Yes, it it is. um, Oh wow, yeah. Um, Also, the decision to cast so many uh, straight actors in um, comic roles. Jack Black at the time was not a comic actor. He Mm. he was in. um, I think he was in John Malkovich's theatre. No, Tim Robbins' theatre company. Oh right. Uh, which is why Tim Robbins is in the uh, Tenacious D movie because they're just old mates. Oh, really? Yeah. And Tim and he's they're also both in High Fidelity. Oh my god! Um, Tim Robbins has been doing more and more comedy recently, which is quite satisfying. Mm. Um, but Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Pierce Brosnan. I don't think Sarah Jessica Parker was really that well known for comedy. Um, Joe Don Baker. It's a, it's a long lot. Rod Steiger even. Yeah. These are all proper serious actors. Yeah, um, it's not the Saturday Night Live crowd. No, I mean, uh, Martin Short's the exception. Yeah. Who absolutely is one of the Saturday Night Live crowd. Um, and Michael J. Fox is known for comedy. But for the most part, it's... You know, it, it is like having you know William Holden, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Fred Astaire, all being in the, the big movie. Yeah, if you can uh, look at um, the Marvel movies these days, where they've got an all-star cast of the cream of of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, people are going to the brand, and we're meant to be living in an age of the death of the movie star. What Mars Attacks does, it's got it's got kind of a double whammy. I suppose there might have been some a lack of belief in the the provenance of the material or just the script. But it's counterbalanced by every star under the sun. There's going to be someone in every demographics catered for. It's a four quadrant. It's a lot of. It's fun. It's a bit dumb, and it's got aliens shooting up the place. Yeah, exactly. It it, it is. I would say closer to Owen Allen than Edward. Yes. Yeah. Particularly towards the end, where Burton doesn't hold back. Um, no, there are some it's great effects. What happens yeah. at the end? But anyway, our friend Lucas House takes his grandma back to the home. And um, where she enjoys uh, listening to Slim Whitman, the, now, yod- the I, yodeling cowboy. I, this is the piece of Americana that went over my head because this becomes important uh, for the resolution. And I don't know whether that artist or that particular track is seen as as a bit crap in America or... It's chintzy. It's chintz, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's the kind of thing that Burton's parents would have listened to. So I suppose if there was an English version of this, they'd combat the aliens with something like the Birdie song or Kajagoo. Oh no! Oh no! Or what? They'd fight the aliens with Tom Jones. Well, they would. 
If only Tom Jones was in this movie. Byron is also um, trying to be lured in by Art Land f- to work at his casino and wants to uh, help him, w- wants, wants him to shake down someone for $2,000. Byron's having none of it. And it's also mentioned that he's Muslim now. Yes, he's not. He, so he, he's, I found Allah, I don't eat pork, and I'm a better man. So uh, he's very obviously meant to be Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Well, you say that I, 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 that didn't occur to me, but I see what you mean. Um, Particularly how it's mentioned he fought the Quaker in Jamaica. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, um, which is a nice gag because, of course, Quakers are nonviolent. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the coordinates are figured out for where the aliens are actually going to land. It's at Pahrump, Nevada, which is a real place. Yeah, and it's a very Mel Brooks name that. And it's it's just some empty backwater in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> while they're having the meeting in the White House about all the uh, uh, all the people they're going to have to have and keep, you know, keep all the the, uh, the intellectuals and the li- the liberals away, the door to the side of the Oval Office opens and it's young Taffy saying, Do you know, "There's people trying to sleep mm. here. This is a home." Mm. We then cut to the what looks like the entirety of the American military powering across the Nevada desert to the rendezvous with the the spacecraft in a gobsmacking shot. I mean, Burton. This isn't. That's not CGI or anything. That looks like he's got the uh, involvement of the U.S. military, and he's got all these choppers flying and jeeps. And I don't know whether they actually uh, read the script, but this film did not have cooperation from the U.S. military. Well, there was no way they would agree to this. Certainly not from the phone call that takes place from within. Uh, I think a lot of this is um, uh, visual effects, props, and leftover World War Two stuff. What you mean that shots the one of all the choppers and the jeeps? Look at all the the tracks on the. It might well be a, a fantastic. Hey, hey, stock footage. But then you get a shot of our friend. It's Tyrell, isn't it, from the Wrath of Khan on the phone with all the the choppers in the background. I think that's actually a virtue of the budget. Um, uh, yes, you're probably right. But but even then, the U.S. military did not no of course assist not. with the making of this film. No, this isn't Top Gun. This isn't. This film is in no way trying to recruit anybody. And anyway, everyone heads to this rendezvous in the Nevada desert, a bit like um, the Apollo um, uh, launches, um, only this time it's a, a landing. There's some great shots of the... Well, it's Close Encounters. It's a nod yeah, to Close Encounters. Uh, yeah. There's no fancy mountain or anything. It's all in the, in the, in the plains, basically. The scientist is desperately trying to um, get his translation machine to work. And I believe his, uh, his foreign assistant is played by Barbara Schroeder, who is a very highly regarded French art house filmmaker? Well, that would make sense from a Close Encounters point of view, with Truffaut yes. um, appearing in that. That you might be right that there isn't, you know. But if, if they'd done a sort of sound, it's a, uh, it's a tip of the hat rather than a possibly an yeah. active parody. Yeah. Um, but the the saucer approaches and lands, and a ramp unrolls from it like a tongue. It's amazing a, CGI. It looks great. It's disgusting the, this the this tongue ramp that yeah. just unfurls is horrible there's a sense of weight to uh the craft as the the legs unfurl from it yeah uh, it gives a little bounce as it hits the ground and then down the ramp comes not Klaatu but the and alien the, ambassador who is a horrifying looking skull-faced creature with an exposed brain who's four foot tall who's four feet tall he comes out with us on a guard, and the general reaches forward to shake his hand. 
there's a nice touch where they're watching at home uh, and there's a dog that goes up and barks at the uh, TV screen and it looks like the alien ambassador looks at the dog oh, yeah. through the TV screen, which is quite nice. And uh, it's this uh, this military general that has to uh, to welcome them to the planet Earth and Jack Nicholson's looking very proud and noble and... And if you, at this point, still were unconvinced that this was a work of parody, then the moment the Martians is translated as saying, we come in peace, uh, will convince you, because someone releases a dove. The dove is clearly a rather crappy model that's, that's flying above the smiling crowd, but it doesn't piss off the alien ambassador. They immediately shoot it dead. Yes. And it turns Im- instantly into a colossal firefight between the aliens with their multicolored laser guns mm. and the military. It's brilliant. It's a bravura shoot 'em up. You have people running in all directions. Uh, you have uh, Michael J. Fox running to try and intercept um, Natalie, Sarah Jessica Parker's character. Mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson going, whoa, um, Vegas. They, uh, th- well, the. Uh, they almost reach each other and they 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 are able to hold hands and then we see that actually Fox has been shot and it's just his hand that's left. Yes. Um so you've got Jeeps going by with skeletons behind the wheel. You've got the Martians taking the severed hand, um Sarah Jessica Parker, her dog. Jack Black buys the farm. Uh, Jack Black that completely fails to do anything useful. And we cut back to we cut back to uh, the briefing room where Kessler says I know this seems terrible but let's not be too rash yes they did say we come in peace Jack Nicholson basically canvasses opinion from the room and eventually asks Glenn Close exactly what they should do and her brilliant reaction is kick the crap out of them she's just as gung-ho and militaristic and and hawkish. Yes. In the inside of the spaceship, they're doing all kinds of crazy experiments. Their leader reads the message from the president and just laughs and leers at the copy of Playboy that he's found. Indeed. It's a mixture of real sets and CGI. Poor old Sarah Jessica Parker is in a great big glass valve, it looks like. And the aliens appear to go around in their underwear on the spaceship. It's a bit slacker. It's a bit sort of... It's it's a sort of hipster version of, of these aliens. And it's it's quite amazing from a design point of view. They really went down on it. Hmm. There's an autopsy on one of the aliens they managed to kill. God, yeah. And uh, it's a very nicely designed sequence. It reminds me of the Andromeda strain with the characters in these sort of big bubble suits. Oh, yes. And um, I think it's Kessler who says, well, what concerns me most is the lack of genitalia. Yes. It's all always comes back to sex these, these, in the I, end. These, imma- these immature obsessions. It's always about sex or yeah. money. It's never about anything higher like reading Herman Hesse novels or donuts. No. Back on the alien spaceship, horrors abound. And I found this genuinely disturbing when I saw it first and indeed on the rewatch because the effects on this are brilliant. Sarah Jessica Parker is having a very bad day at the office and her little pooch its head is now on her body and her head is floating in a tank of of goo of course it's completely ridiculous but by god does it look real (laughs) uh whilst meantime billy is having a uh, military funeral yeah full honors which 
I think that's the point where I think any attaché to the State Department reading it thought, uh, no, we can't participate yeah, in this yeah. film because it is fully making fun of the American deferential attitude towards the military. Yeah, Byron's planning to get back to Washington while his children are visiting the White House. Well, his children are also practicing shooting guns at a yeah, nice little space in this game. Play, they're playing their, their game in the living room as they well as are, in the arcade. Yes, And the uh, Martians are due to address Congress. They are. Now, at this stage, it's blatantly obvious that, it, that the president and all his advisors frankly deserve everything they're getting because there's no way that any aliens would be allowed anywhere near the whole entirety of Congress. And in fact, they do keep the press away from that meeting. Because um, the Secret Service says they didn't want more yeah. than one branch of government in the building. And that's for plot reasons, because we want to keep Jack around for the rest of the film. But no, he's he's quite happy to go, oh, well, yes, we'll let them in. They clearly made a mistake. It's you know he, he wants to be seen as the great peacemaker. Uh, as he says later on, Earth and Mars together. And he is blind to the risks and blind to the danger of these obviously evil aliens <laughs> yes so we're invited to laugh at, at this guy and his despite the fact he's being very presidential we get a once we cut to congress and the people waiting there in the police cordon and everything it starts panning past some some of the some of the cops holding up signs saying no applause and no birds it struck me that that's quite an airplane thing well, it's it's following on from the previous scene because they think, well, if people mm. applaud, they might assume that's a, some sort of attack. Yeah, I mean, the birds yeah, didn't lo- go down well last time. It follows, but they, uh, it just struck me that that's what this film needs. It needs a f- comedy on a level of of airplane, I think. But it's trying to be more like Strange Love. It's it's harnessing elements from Strange Love, de- definitely, but it's it's not going the full Strange Love route. Anyway, the alien craft lands on the lawn outside a building we're invited to think is, is Congress. The great and the good are all inside, including Professor Kessler. And in walks. He takes a moment to compose himself before speaking, then pulls out a laser gun and kills everyone in Congress, yes. whilst everyone on TV watches and, and uh, our elderly granny laughs her head off. And Glenn Close has a... W- I love it when people spit out their, what they're drinking as a reaction shot. Uh, Glenn Close does a brilliant reaction shot here. Natalie Portman says, guess it wasn't the dove then that sparked it. They're just definitely here to uh, blow everyone up. And you're quite right. The grandma has a wonderful braying laugh as she, she goes, they blew up Congress! <laughs> And that's, that's what I like about this film. There is an, an, an anarchic spirit to it. Absolutely. Um, Burton is basically like one of the Martians going in and just spraying everything with his brightly coloured laser. And it's the people to which he feels an affinity, the outsiders. The good the good people who just want to do good things. Even, even mm. I mean, Byron is hardly an outsider. He's the heavyweight champion of the world. Well... But he's portrayed mm, yeah. as being a good, honest sincere man he just wants to provide for his family but he's right at the bottom of the food chain he's down on his luck he's having to dress up and cosplay as an Egyptian King Tut in Vegas whereas we know that he's trying to make it work with his family so yeah it's the outsiders and those who are alienated that Burton's got the affinity for basically it's a bunch of Edward Scissorhands Uh, the president in the war room reflecting on the latest disaster says well we all make mistakes so one person gets human napped which is Pierce Brosnan oh yes he's he's carted away as well 
whilst uh, General Rod Steiger tries to push for the nuclear option. So we go into a room which is clearly meant to be the war room and with giant maps and yeah, it's definitely here we go and this is definitely Shades of Doctor Strangelove and Steiger is going out of his nut. We have to nuke them, we have to nuke them now, annihilate, kill, kill, kill. It's parodic but it's fun. And after he's turned away he starts to walk away, goes back to the desk, yes. angrily picks up his clipboard and then leaves. Yes, Nice little piece of business. And Jack Nicholson tries to do a great big marshalling speech about... Um, How we will come out to a very real outcome. <laughs> yes. Cut to Pierce Brosnan in the alien spacecraft. Now with his head off. And again, it's done incredibly well. Um, Natalie's head has been grafted onto the body of her dog. Yes. The effects remind me of something out of uh, Death Becomes Her, actually. Do you remember oh, all yes. the, the heads being twisted? Oh, yes. The, effect, the effects of Death Becomes Her are terrific. Yes. They're dated extremely well. And certainly they hold up here. And what you have is a very twisted love story from the maker of Edward Scissorhands. You've got a guy who is now just a disembodied head and who's been picked apart, dissected with a woman who's got her head on the body of a dog. So really, in a sense, they're, they're perfect for each other. And they declare their love. Back in Washington, oh. um, we see the most obvious spy in history being dropped off by bus, which is a detail that I liked, played by, as you mentioned before, Tim Burton's girlfriend. And this is one of the great images from the film. She's got a Jane Russell thing going on. She's this great big, tall, buxom, blonde perfect goddess well i would say the the intention is to connect more to marilyn monroe because there is a, there is possibly yes that's definitely she's meant that it's the alien who've clearly passed american culture and they've gone uh, and actually it might be a playboy thing they might pull down oh, yes. of uh, marilyn's playboy spread well they do have a copy of playboy they on the do ship. quite where that came from not sure but this is Lisa Marie Presley, am I right in thinking that? Yes. Uh, who was at the time Burton's other half. She has no lines. She's just an incredible image in this film. She's got this unearthly way of walking. She glides mm. uh, with her sort of swishing arms. And if we're not sure that Martin Short's character is a total dipstick by now, led by his little brain, we certainly are when he rolls up in his limo and goes would you like to spend the night on a free tour around the, the White House and invites us straight in as I say the uh, the immature impulses are the ones that drive everyone to their destruction in the film yeah I mean, and I think I mean the trading cards would have been collected by young boys in the main yeah there are no as far as I can remember I've had a quick look at them before I watched the film again and I don't believe there's any fantastically salacious image it's all about aliens shooting up the place and Mars exploding and robots but this is more about um, sort of 50s B movies and you know, things like Attack of the 50 Foot Women and, and stuff like that where you've got some uh, female devil come from space to use men and to, to mine the planet Earth Queen of Outer Space that's another one I think oh, with Jar Jar Gabor there's one I can't remember the name of it. I used to love these movies. They used to show them a lot late at night on BBC One, mm. particularly during the summer, or maybe that was just when I got the chance to watch them because I was home from school. And I saw so many of these really ropey old 50s 
sci-fi movies. Uh, Terror from the Year 5000. Oh, wow. That was, that was a great one. And um, Invasion of the Saucer Men, which was kind of generic, except it had Frank Gorshin in it as a drunk. <laughs> and I think this was after he had already become famous. And the write-up, and I think the, the Telegraph's TV guide, was that cabbage-headed aliens come to Earth and decide to take over the planet after a drunk driver turns one of their numbers into coleslaw. <laughs> and it was, and obviously it was the Telegraph, but it was written with a kind of a warmth. So yeah, this is, I mean, it's nonsense, but it's pretty fun nonsense. It wasn't a sneering tone. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's that's about right. It's, these things are fun. They're fun monster movies for the kids. That's how, That's what they are intended as. Yeah, I'm a, I definitely remember a few seasons of 50s B-movies on BBC Two. It oh, came yeah. from Outer Space. I think it's got a really terrifying bug-eyed monster in it. Um, it, the terror from beyond space. That's another one. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of yeah, movies, but um This Island Earth is, I think, the, this Island oh, Earth yes. actually has a, a big um, influence on this because the the monster with the big exposed brain at the end uh, the, yes. the, the, the yeah. mutant on the alien planet is, I think, a big inspiration on the design of the Martians. Yeah, that was big across the. I mean, if you think of the Morphotons in. Those are just uh, brains. They're just brains with ice with spikes, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. but th- this was a creature with a, an exposed brain. And This Island Earth has the benefit of actually being quite a good film in its own mm. right. It actually has genuinely quite a good story. Yeah, I mean, there are there are choice films for that Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Day of the Earth Stood Still. Genuinely good. Yes, but the, uh, those are proper science fiction films, and those are serious science fiction films. Whereas I'm talking more about the ones with crazy alien monsters. Oh, okay. Yes, the primordial soup out of which all the the great artistic statements the, managed to all escape. The th- all the things against which Stanley Kubrick was kicking when he made 2001. Yeah, yeah. He would look at Day the Earth Stood Still and think, yes, that's a proper serious film with a serious message. And he would watch. Um, terror from the year 5000 and think this is a load of crap <laughs> whereas Tim Burton would look at it and go ah he'd watch 2001 and think oh this is really helpful technical stuff yes excellent and he'd watch terror at the year 5000 and think this is a really great story yeah. I want to remake this yeah in this scene of seduction between Lisa Maria Presley um, Space Girl and Martin Short do you think Martin Short is a little bit like Mike Myers not particularly. No? Why do you ask Ball that? is leaping on the, the waterbed and his what little it? winks to her and the way he leans up against the bust and lifts the head up and the switches underneath. This is, you know, I it, thought it was all very of it Austin pre- Powers. Which it predates mm-hmm. by a year. Yeah. I, Mike Myers was Saturday Night Live, of course. That's where Waynesville came from. Um, so there could be an inspiration there, perhaps, but... I think it's more that he's maybe maybe he's leaning more towards the inspiration for Austin Powers, which is Peter Sellers, mm. which is very sixties, very Bergbackeracky. Um, less likely in Martin Short's case. Oh no, I mean in Austin Powers. In Austin case. Powers, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, Jason King's a massive influence on Austin Powers. Yeah, but just in terms of the way Martin Short's doing the scene, I think it's just sort of. The, you know, the 60s look of love sort of thing through the fish tank and the fact that he's uh, a great physical performer yes have you seen his recent performances with Steve Martin at all I haven't yet oh, no I'm looking forward to it you're in for a treat 
I mean, uh, I, I I watch a lot of Saturday Night Live clips on YouTube, and there's one which was um, the Five Timers Lounge, where the the hosts who've hosted the show five times go to uh, relax, and it's Steve Martin and um, Alec Baldwin. All right. And Martin Short is playing their uh, their waiter, except it's in the within the sketch. It's actually Martin Short because he's fallen on hard times. And there's a bit of business where he's taking two glasses of whiskey away, but he holds the glasses by putting his hand inside the glass into the <laughs> drink, yeah, and just holding the side of the glasses like that. And it's this weird tiny bit of business, but it's so funny. The opening of the Martin Short Steve Martin current live performances. I tried to get tickets for their appearance this year, and you'd have to remortgage your house, unfortunately, to uh, see them together live. But there is a recording. Yes, it's on Netflix. And um, the opening where they are basically insulting each other is very, very funny. When they sit down and they start doing Q&A and Martin gets his banjo out, it's slightly less interesting. But I quite like their mutual roasting of each other. I like Martin's music. Uh, his his bluegrass music, his it's sort of unironic, mm. serious classic bluegrass, and it's actually very, very listenable. And he's a very talented musician. Yes, absolutely. So that's the, that's the other thing that he does. Um, he's more talented on the banjo than Woody Allen is on the clarinet. clarinet. If you watch uh, yeah, Wild Man Blues, that. it's quite painful to see Woody performing. And uh, Woody did perform in London with his his little jazz band and mm. I thought I don't really want to you, know, you, you just can't be done with it no. anyway so uh, yeah Mike uh, Martin Short's performance is very enjoyable in this he doesn't last long with this creature from outer space unfortunately no I mean the, there is a moment where they disappear off the side of the frame to kiss and I don't want to know what happens but whatever it is <laughs> he he experienced some sort of physical response she's a very passive figure I find Burton's use of his muses in his films to be quite interesting because it's quite clear that Winona Ryder was a bit of a thing for him. If you look at the way she looks in Edward Scissorhands, particularly towards the end, the way Lisa Maria Presley's decks out in this, the sort of weird angel, mm. um, and in fact the ice sculptures of uh, Winona at the end of Edward Scissorhands. And then you get Lisa Maria Presley. And then you head into the phase of Helena Bonham Carter. And actually, that's when Burton starts to lose me big time. Yes, and perhaps more recently with Eva Grimm himself uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, it's a while since he's made anything that was truly interesting. Have you seen Big Eyes? I haven't, but I've heard that that's probably more... It's not quite a return to form, but it would have been easy for him to cast Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp in the lead roles and instead it's Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz yeah and it's a much lighter in tone story it's I think his only f oh no, no Edward it's his only film based on a true story but mm. there's Edward um, but it feels like a a change of pace for him it feels like a Burton film but it's like he's stretching himself he doesn't do that enough. Um, no, he immediately went back to doing some crappy knockoff. I mean, he did the the Dumbo adaptation this year, which no one cared about. I mean, the Dumbo, it makes sense for, Dum for Burton to do Dumbo because of his outsider thing. But 
he just hasn't been interesting as a filmmaker for 15 years at least I'd say Sweeney it, Todd I liked Sweeney I Todd. liked yeah that that I thought was very good um, and I will stick up for Big Eyes which I think more people should have seen yeah, Alice in Wonderland is, stuff is Alice in Wonderland is terrible I, but I have to say have that goes down well with children uh, I've seen I need to reference my niece um, who watched Alice in Wonderland not through the looking glass though Charlie and the Chocolate Factory blasphemy um, should never have been made and it's got a really weird performance from Johnny Depp yeah. channeling Michael Jackson in. yeah so it's and it has that horrible double helping of it creepy. has that horrible twist towards the end with oh shit I'd forgotten about that the bloody dentist father thing, which yeah. it, it was like being kicked in the stomach when that was suddenly thrown in yeah Though, oh, no, we, no, we have to have backstory for Willy Wonka why can't we just accept that he's someone who likes making sweets and is good at it I know is that not enough I know yeah, I don't really want to revisit that. Um, whereas, of course, I would happily revisit the Gene Wilder version at the drop of a hat. Um, and because that, so because it it does take that idea. Oh, yeah, he is just he likes he's making sweets. He's good at it, but he has much more depth. And Gene Wilder's performance in that film is amazing. Oh, it's off the charts. He's it's one for the ages. That performance. It it deserves to rank alongside Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. Definitely, absolutely. Particularly since Wilder was not a musical performer. And, and Van Dyke was. It's got a danger to it, that performance. That the final scene, not the, well, not quite the final scene, but very close to the end, where he throws Charlie out. Yeah. And Gene Wilder is yelling into the face of a small child. Mm. And he's not holding back at all. And presumably he and uh, Peter Ostrom, the actor, you know, talked about it before. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this for real. Okay, I'm really going to go for it. But it, it's, it's so harsh and it's so cruel. Yes, but then Charlie brings back the everlasting gods and just puts it next to him on the desk anyway. Because even after he's been so horrible to him, he's still going to do the right thing. And you just have that shot of Wonka's hand reaching out and just resting over the sweet. And it's such a gentle movement. And he says in voiceover, mm. "What's the line?" So, so shines a good deed in a weary world. Yes, and. Wilder uh, changes on a dime. He spins around, and there's joy and relief that Charlie passed the test, and and he can now Wonka can really be his true self. He doesn't have to put on this facade of being yes. a great showman. He can be the like a like a grown up little boy almost. Yes, it's um, it's, an, it's a classic film. It's, basically, it's a wonderful film, and it's got Tim Brooke Taylor as well in a, a little cameo, which is always welcome. Anyway, Lisa Marie Presley um, basically (laughs) gets half her face chewed off. And it's a a wonderful uh, effects thing. You can see the the alien underneath. She slips into the president's sleeping quarters. We've missed the bit where they're walking down the corridor. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Where Martin Short is walking faster than she is and, and talking, and she's gliding along behind him. And to catch up, she slips into the Martian way of walking with hunched over or like um, you know like a, a vampire from a science yes. film crouch 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 and then standing back up straight at the moment he turns around well it reminds me of um, uh, a sort of winter sports bobslayers as they're going along in the ice but it's really creepy yeah it's a tiny and moment it's, but it's, and, it's, and it's funny to see this beautiful 
creature with such poise. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, this alien goes into uh, the president's bedroom and sleeping like a couple of Egyptian pharaohs in their beds are Jack Nicholson and Glenn Close and uh, there's a slightly wa- shoddy effect shot where, where I mean what can you do Lisa Marie Presley lifts her head off which is revealed to be a mask and it reveals the um, the alien underneath its head is bigger than Lisa Marie Presley's and then all hell breaks loose yes um, as befits the original um, trading card a dog gets destroyed mm. um the Secret Service bursts in and shoot the assassin. Um, and <laughs> the Martian leader is absolutely furious and starts beating up one of his underlings. And really starts going for it and unleashes his army. And there's a fantastic shot of his soldiers being dressed in this sort of shell which clamps shut on you and just... They go. Um, they go in with their underpants on. They yeah. come out wearing the, the, the yeah. full, the full suit with guns and everything, and it, it makes me think of like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Absolutely, yes. Where you see like the machine da, 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 yeah. da, da, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and they also have an enormous robot, which is from the Top's Trading Card Collection. The design of it is fairly similar. It reminded me a little bit of Natalie Portman's in the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Jennifer Connelly. And we get some great shots of all the UFOs approaching the White House. And they play games with the... The um, Washington Monument. Is it? Which gets zapped and, and they, he plays keepy-uppy with it. They, uh, they carefully nudge it onto a fleeing yes, uh, troop of which uh, I love. Boy Scouts. Jack Nicholson's on the phones uh, being told it's a full-scale invasion as the UFOs are visible approaching outside the windows. And by this stage, we've got Pam Grier's two sons in the White House on the tour. Yes, there's a refusal to acknowledge that... Just a bit. ...that there's there's anything uh, dangerous going on because the White House tours are still going on. Yes, that's true. It's actually a good payoff from a line that happened earlier where when Natalie Portman was walking through the the halls of the White House, she was refused entry into a certain room because the tour was going on. And there's the payoff here where the president and his wife are similarly barred from an exit because there's the tour going on. There's a great moment which did make me laugh out loud when the tour guide, who's pointing out who one of the portraits is, gets completely zapped. That would have been a punch-the-air moment for schoolboys everywhere. And then those little green men uh, invade. They, um, they shoot out a chandelier which falls on the First Lady... So Glenn closes out. Ironic deaths are big in Mars Attacks. Uh, the uh, the two boys form a rearguard action by stealing a couple of alien guns <laughs> using their uh, yes. hard-won knowledge. The optics on that aren't particularly great, but uh, it's a fun fun scene. While Art Land is pitching to investors, given that, he, as he's previously said, when the aliens arrive, they're going to have to need a place to stay. In... in an amazing set seen only once in this scene with great big um, Saturnian globes maps of the of the solar system it's an extraordinary um, set and he is unfortunately oblivious to the UFOs approaching from outside we get another great woe from him and then another ironic death as he is crushed by the real state of planet Earth and the um the disintegrating casino is actually 
uh, for real. It is an actual casino. Really? That was demolished. And it was filmed for the production. So it's, an actu- it's a real building. It's not even a model. But the globe rolls out of the top of the, the casino. Well, I think that close-up shot might be a model, I think or that might, might be, be enhanced. But the actual building as a whole was was a real casino being uh, blown up. Yeah, they don't have the same respect for physical structures in America that we do in the UK, where everything gets an English Heritage sign slapped on it. When our fellow Limbo contributor and I, uh, Chris and I, went to Florida, we toured the Apollo launch sites. We were really dismayed at the state of them. Overgrown, full of weeds, not any real signage or anything. It's, you know, to us as space geeks, these were almost like, you know, holy lands. It was the place where man first ventured into space. But Americans would just trash it, get it all down, put something else up. They don't have that sort of it's a disposable culture. I suppose you're right. Um, it's justified with gaudy shit like Las Vegas. But if it's somewhere like Cape Canaveral, which is a keystone of history, yeah, you should be looking after it. Absolutely. I'm surprised that it's not in use for some reason. No, it's not. What happens there every year, this is a bit of a digression, is that there's a memorial service for the astronauts who died. Uh, the Mercury fire. Yeah. Um, oh, fair enough. And there's a little memorial plaque there. But the whole place looks like an abandoned playground. It's terrible. So it's quite, it is. It's not great because you know we couldn't believe we were it's, it's, standing. It's a living museum. Yeah. So over here in the UK, that would get you know be listed, and the council wouldn't let anyone build anything on it. But in the US, no, just knock it down, build on top of it. Terrible. Outrageous. Anyway, whilst this Armageddon is occurring, these characters are being killed off. It's business as usual in Vegas. Oh yeah, the show must go on because uh, Tom Jones is headlining tonight. And it's an amazingly left field <laughs> gonzo. This late in the film yeah. to introduce not only an, a major new character, but it's Tom Jones as himself. Singing his most famous record, doing his little dance moves. Well, obviously that's the song that he opens every show with. Obviously. So whilst we see him singing, Pam is trying to get in touch with her husband. Art is, is being announced as dead and, and his partner wants to go on a plane and get the hell out of Dodge. Oh, she's been drinking heavily as well. She's, she's lapsed. unfortunately lapsed. And uh, the the lights go off on the stage while it's brilliant. Tom's singing. And when they come back on again, his dancers have been replaced by Martians. And so he gets into the it. only swear swearing in the, the film where Tom Jones goes, Jesus Christ, <laughs> which is great. And I remember when I saw this at the cinema thinking that he was actually really good in this film yeah he is uh, certainly the funniest thing because it just it's just so out there it's a pity he hasn't done more but it's the fact who, that he's just playing could, himself who else could he possibly well, play well I know I know I just wanted more of this I mean it's the sort of thing where you know he's he's done the Morecambe and Wise show he mm. I mean what is this if not one of Ernie Wise's plays <laughs> Very true. I mean, this is cheesy and and where, kitschy. Where and everyone, you got a lot of serious actors coming in, putting on silly makeup and sending themselves up. Yeah, yeah. And he runs out of off the stage, self-preservation, which is very amusing. And then d- dives in behind stage, tells all the girls to get out of the way. There's a Martian behind me, and Danny DeVito goes up to him and asks for an autograph. Danny DeVito, whose character is credited as Rude Gambler. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> 
there's a nice moment where Tom Jones uh, introduces himself to Byron Williams. And it's a bit like Tom Jones superhero, really, isn't it? You know, he knows how to fly. He knows how to fly a plane. He's, he's just Tom Jones. He saw, he saw Byron fight in Cardiff. Yeah, yeah, yes, he did. Cardiff, Wales is what he says. Well, it's one word in America. And outside, the, the Sunset Strip is getting absolutely diced up by UFOs and their lasers. And they let rip. I mean, never mind the White House blowing up. The entire place is uh, scorched. And they're carting, they're carting the translation machine around. Are they carting it around in a shopping trolley? I think they are. Yeah, we and come in peace. I think. Isn't it? Don't don't run. We are your we friends. We are your friends. Yeah. As they mow down hundreds of innocent civilians. Yes. Um, police are killed when a donut shop explodes, and Richie's family are getting ready to go to war. You know, getting ready with their arming and. Uh, Joe Dunbaker says, "Well, they, they're not going to get the TV." Yeah. Again, it's the the, the most superficial. The things. American obsession, opium of the masses. But um, Richie's going to do the the good thing and and go and rescue Granny. Indeed, because that's oh we, oh never mind her. She's halfway to space already. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna. He's going to look after his grandmother, as she said earlier. She always calls him Thomas. And there's a, there's a scene where he was driving back to us and says, oh, you know, Thomas, Richie was always my favourite. And uh, that's so sweet. And she says, oh, gra- Grandma, it's, it's, I'm it's, it's me, Richie. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know, Thomas. I know. <laughs> she's this lovely old lady. No idea what's she's, going she's on. She's in outer space. <laughs> Jack Nicholson is facing all of this Armageddon with great stoicism and self-control. Well, they get a phone call from France. No, th- no <laughs> they I'm, do, yeah. Now, hang on. The scientist earlier who was helping with the translation machine, that wasn't Barbara Schroeder. That was Jerzy Smolikowski. Jerzy who now? Jerzy Smolikowski, director of films including the acclaimed Deep End and The Shout. Oh. Um, News to me. British-based Polish director, very highly acclaimed in the 70s, Mm. um, whose acting roles include Mars Attacks and Marvel's The Avengers. (laughs) He has the weirdest CV. The French president is played by Barbara Schroeder. And I do like that he, he rings him up, rings up Jack Nicholson and Jack says, Ah, Henri, ça va? <laughs> and Paris gets so, oh, we've signed, totally oh, destroyed. Oh, we've, signed, we've signed a treaty with the Martians. No, it's a trick, it's a trick. As you hear screams in the background and the Eiffel Tower melts. Yes, it's... Uh, the poor old French really get it in the neck. And Jax can hear all this at the end of the phone. His expression is a, a picture. So they fire a nuclear missile at the Martian ship to see if, if that will do Finally. anything at all. And they se- and the Martians send up this tiny little thing, and it sets off the missile, and it just sucks up the explosion, flies back into the ship. The Martian ambassador inhales the the explosion like a bong hit and it gives him a high voice so this you mentioned looney tunes earlier on and this is pure looney tunes it's there's almost a bit of who framed roger rabbit uh in this i think christopher lloyd doesn't he have a tiny little horn which you press then it just turns into this blaring thing that is in the film i don't think it's christopher lloyd i think it's bob hoskins okay but yeah it's the same sort of cartoonish but we've got uh, incredibly well realized destruction of Las Vegas alongside incredibly well-realized Looney Tunes slapstick. We've got 
uh, Big Ben is destroyed. That's very satisfying. Ru- uh, Rush- Mount Rushmore is recarved. I enjoyed all that. Yes, um, he's seen Superman too. The Martians having their picture taken in front of the Taj Mahal as yes. it blows up. Easter Island, uh, lower are knocked down by a giant bowling ball. And that's a very gonzo image. That. Yeah. That's that's really uh, extraordinary. Godzilla is running rampant. Oh, no, wait, that, they're showing that in the cinema. On and the people TV. Run, people run screaming out of the cinema. Yes. Uh, they're watching, the aliens are watching the Dukes of Hazard on on TV. <laughs> so it's 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 basically wallowing in trash culture now and, and the destruction of, well, the US, basically. How could this possibly be saved? I like the fact that the two aliens are also leering through some caravan window at some lovers before they completely roast them. And Richie uh, escapes to go off for his for Granny, just as the giant robot arrives and smashes up the trailer that his whole family's in and immediately kills all of them. Yes, I think that robot is one step too far. Oh, that's where you draw the line. Yes, I think. It's unnecessary. It's only there because it's part. It's, it's on the top's trading cards, and they can't do the insects and the bugs. And all it's there to do is to crash the two caravans together. And I, I seem to remember thinking at the time as, ah, okay, it's a little bit too much. I didn't mind it. It made me think of. Um, I enjoyed it these days. Uh, ugly tourism. What's that? The way that um, the more insular people from whatever country go to other countries and have very little regard for what history is for the culture and the uh, the mo- the robot is just picking up two um trailers and just smashing them together like toys mm. and it, and it reminded me of that yes and it, again it's done with amazing special effects and it ch- it chases after him yes it does yes until uh, it gets tangled up in some um electricity cables and falls over, and you see that um, the Martian landed headfirst on the dome on the inside and, and <laughs> smashed his brains in. <laughs> Danny DeVito and friends are hightailing it to the nearest aircraft to get the hell out of Nevada. Danny DeVito has the moments which are, are quite repeatable on YouTube, where he tries to sweet talk an alien that he comes across. And uh, he makes the terrible mistake of saying, You want to conquer the world? You're going to need lawyers, right? He also tries to offer the alien his Rolex. Oh, yes, he does, yeah. Um, and he then gets completely toasted, but not by the alien, I think. It's by Annette Benning. No, she doesn't shoot him. No, the alien, oh, you're shoot, right. the alien, the alien shoots, shoots him, him, and then Annette Benning yes, shoots the you're alien. you're quite right. So, yeah, Annette Benning comes good with the ray gun, gets a compliment from Tom Jones, and the aliens... They've, they've invaded the rest home. where Richie's gone and they're just causing chaos there there's skeletons going by in wheelchairs and they notice that Granny's listening to her records and is unaware of whatever's going on so they decide to wheel in the giant laser gun into the room and point it at her head before activating it which is really wonderful and really quite malicious it's done with a degree of glee that that's huge machine pointing straight at her head but then she i think she just takes the the headphones out of the uh, the record Rich- player richie arrives mm. and he gets her attention and she turns around and to hear what he's saying she just pulls the cable out so that her music is playing through the speakers but it's uh, slim whitman the yodeling cowboy and, and it's it, quite an and it causes a response because the martian's brains start to bubble and then explode again brilliantly done and the the button on the scene is Granny saying, 
Oh, Thomas, I think these fellas are very sick. Yeah, these are the sick ones. In the war room, the doors burst open and a snow globe rolls in with a little Martian inside. Yes, that's a bizarre moment. It's a diversionary tactic by the, by the, the Martians, but I don't quite know why they rendered a tiny little space alien inside it. Steiger goes bananas. He he tries a last stand, but the, all the, the, his bullets bounce off, so they shoot him with a shrink ray until he's small enough to stamp on. Ironic death number three. Uh, even uh, Mitch, the faithful uh, secret serviceman who's been there the whole time and getting more and more injured, gets shot. And finally, we have the Independence Day speech. We do. So why why are we do from from Jack Nicholson? Why are we doing this? We could we could work together. Think think of how strong we could be. Earth holds up one hand as though he's holding a basketball, yes. and Mars other hand holding a ping pong ball. Oh, what! And finally, quoting Rodney King, <laughs> why can't we just all get along? And the ambassador is moved by There's his words. An extreme close-up of the Martian face and a, a little tear coming out of one of the exposed eyeballs and that's a shot made for a 4K TV screen it's truly something to, to behold and that's why I'd say actually the visual effects in Mars Attacks are better than those in Independence Day there's more invention there's more detail you know you've got the money shot in Independence Day of, of the White House blowing up that yes. trumps con- the Congress sequence in Mars Attacks I think Independence Day the effects are so notable because it was pretty much the last large-scale model effects film. And it was transgressive to have the White House blown to smithereens. Yeah. That was an image that... That was the whole trailer. It was. The first, yeah. the first trailer when it launched, uh, I think during the Super Bowl, was just that shot. Mm. And you didn't need anything else. And then the date. And, and well, the date and the title, which is the same Yes, thing. exactly. <laughs> But yeah, I mean the film. I know the, I know it's trying to be like the end of War of the Worlds and have the viral attack bringing down the aliens. But the end of Independence Day is really stupid, and the fact that you can somehow connect to an alien computer system with what was then um, with, with a Mac. Yeah, and everyone knows that Macs aren't compatible. Yes, with exactly. They're a black box. But hey, science fiction. I mean, if it had been through like um, a Chromebook, that's more plausible. Well, he wouldn't have been around because, then, yeah. But you know, th- the whole point is that they're open source. You, you can connect with everything. They Apple, just shouldn't a- have done Apple, the branding. Apple's are just a load of old crap. They shouldn't have done the the branding. Just said it's the computer. But they probably had a a deal. Yeah, they should have signed up for more money with Dell. <laughs> so yes, De- um, the speech seems to go down well, except when he decides to shake hands with the ambassador, and the ambassador's hand comes off. It crawls around all over his body and then stabs him through the chest. And then, out of the top, unfurls a flag with the image of the circle, and the Martians all make their salute. And say, "Ah, that's what the circle was all along." It was, and that is an extraordinary image for a mainstream American multi-million blockbuster: the dead president, the flag of an alien culture coming out of his, uh, out of his no longer beating heart. And it's not going to be the American military that saves the day; it's going to be a boy with his grandma. Yeah. Quite right too. And what is more in keeping with a fifties sci-fi movie than a little boy defeating the aliens, like yes. at the end of Invaders from Mars? 
Yes, I mean the little boy is not so little in this film, but no, um, but he's treated like he's a child. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. In this, in a fifties version, it would be some like Ricky in Champion, uh, uh, the Wonder Horse. It'd be that sort of little wide-eyed, uh, blonde-haired kid going, "Gosh, wow, I've managed to defeat the aliens." Oh, like um, Roald Dahl's Danny the Champion of the World. Yes, yes, not quite along those lines. Yeah. yeah, but something like that. So the Indian love call is played out uh, through loudspeakers. And clearly, this has been picked up by the military, who are also blasting it out. And Tom Jones and friends are um, are they still trying to get out. They arrive at the airfield, but there's a platoon of Martians there already. And Byron decides that he's going to distract them. Yes, I didn't by, like this. By uh, a punch up. By picking a fight with the Martian leader. Yeah. And um, manages to crack the. Which he wins. Which he wins. And the plane takes off as Byron is swarmed by all the other Martians. Which is what I don't don't like. uh, uh, It's like being on the underground. You just think, you know, I don't want to get crushed by people in this this metal. uh, But I don't like the sense of uh, being uh, overwhelmed by a crush of of alien bodies. Well, in the original version of the film, he was going to die at that point. And it looks like he does. Yeah. But spoiler alert, folks. um, With with Barbara and Tom Jones having escaped. Pam Greer apparently has the force because she can detect that something has happened to Byron. Whilst Slim Whitman is being blasted out on boomboxes from tanks, saucers all over the world are crashing into buildings. Um, and on the main ship, the uh, severed heads of Pierce Brosnan and Sarah Jessica Parker are rolling around. And in what is clearly a nod to the end of this island Earth, um, they kiss as the uh, saucer crashes into the sea and explodes. Yes. It's another really bizarre image. The sort of thing that you would expect to see in some schlocky it's John mystery Waters, science. It? That it is, really. It's it's about taste. And and yet it's... It's there's, sweet. There's no, there's no blood or gore. No. The well, if it is, it's green. It's... Oh, well, I mean, in this particular sequence. Yeah. It's very chased almost their romance mm-hmm. it has to be because most of them don't yes. have bodies anymore it's um there's a you know a, a, a haze code era purity to it there is isn't there yeah well barbara and tom land in the mountains and <laughs> the the squirrel and the deer and the tortoise come out from their shelter it's brilliant i love the ending um and Tom Jones' hand feeds a deer. Uh, in Washington, a mariachi band plays the national anthem. Yes, yes. Natalie Portman is now clearly uh, de facto. It seems to be operating on sort of regal uh, basis, the, there's no the one, presidency. There's nobody left in government. To so the, she to the inherits point. the position. Yeah. And she presents the Congressional Medal of Honor to Richie and his granny. And she says, oh, thank you very much, dear, but don't you dare let this happen again. Quite right, too. And the, the, her final her final line, uh, Taffy's final line, is asking Richie, so, you you got a girlfriend? Mm. <laughs> yes. The outsider comes good. Um, so as for Byron and family... And, well, Richie makes a speech where he's very modest. Oh, yes. And um, he says that, you know, as they rebuild, maybe they should live in teepees because they're better in a lot of ways. They are. Byron arrives back in Washington as the uh, the house 
you see the the apartment building with the entire front missing and you can see yes. all the houses byron stomps on an alien's head as they're being carted away yes while in the mountains tom i mean an, this an is absolutely on, superb an eagle lands on tom jones arm as it's not unusual plays on the soundtrack and tom starts dancing to it and just as he's about to launch into the the first line it cuts it to cuts black to the, it cuts to the end credits and I'd completely forgotten that, and it really it, it's like, it delivers at, a lot of goodwill. At this point, we can just do whatever, whatever yes. we want now. So why yeah. not? Why not Edward? I mean, it would have been great if he just started singing straight into the camera. Well, I don't know. I love that ending. I think it. There's nothing really in. Uh, I mean, Beetlejuice is a bit is is off the wall and has the um, the waiting room with the, um, the the that guy with the normal sized body and the tiny little head. Yeah the sort of weird crazy design so there is a gonzo edge to burton's work but i do think that tom jones ending is absolutely excellent and i don't know whether burton came up with it or the writer Thomathan, jonathan gems i believe is yeah. his name he is on youtube talking about mars attacks not being particularly articulate i have to say about it um, oh. so i think it's it is a film that works on multiple levels there is great ghoulish fun to be had mm. at all the over-the-top horrors in the film, and that's that's a good big laugh. But it, it it is also a satire, at looking at all the the worst parts of America as Mars, which is like a an end stage version of America. This rapacious. Mm. Uh, cruel civilization militaristic militaristic uh, playboy reading playboy reading is head swapping head swapping yeah. going around in underpants this horrible parody of human civilization is coming out to bite it on the bum thanks to Anthony for making time for this recording Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts and Acast with more than 70 episodes available so please download review and subscribe we're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. However, until next time, I got Eric. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual to have fun with anyone. But when I see you hanging about with anyone, it's not unusual to see me. Shut up.